Okay. Hey, if I can, let me uh, pray for us, and uh, we're going to jump into um, uh, the final section of chapter 5. Uh, it's taken us about uh, five months to get here, but uh, five months, one chapter, not too bad. God, you are really good, and I just pray that uh, today we would uh, experience just your goodness and your grace and your mercy uh, in a fresh way, in a unique way. God, you know where every single person is, where their heart is, where things that they are concerned uh, about. God, you know the burdens that uh, every person even carries uh, this day. Uh, God, you know all the questions that we have, and some people, God, here today might be questioning and trying to understand and figure out who you are and what it looks like to have a relationship with you. And uh, God, I also know there's probably some who have walked away from you and are trying to figure out how to come back. Uh, So God, you know everything. You know all things, and you know every single person in this room. And God, today I pray that uh, you would speak in a unique way uh, through your word uh, to us, that we would respond uh, to what you have uh, to say to us today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, I want to live. Uh, this uh, week in particular is going to hit really hard on relationships. So I am pretty much can guarantee you that you'll probably at least think of one, if not two people uh, during the message today, and I would encourage you to remember them, write their name down, uh, because God might actually be calling you to respond uh, to something uh, with them, uh, meaning uh, God might be calling you to reach out to them maybe even to reconcile with them. Uh, So at the heart of today is uh, looking at what Jesus has to say about uh, relationships, uh, specifically uh, things like retaliation and uh, specifically things like loving your enemy. So uh, a a question I want to kick it off with, uh, what is your typical response when someone really just ticks you off? Okay, it happens. Uh, We get frustrated, annoyed, ticked off, uh, probably more than a few times during a week. So when that happens to you, when someone does something to tick you off, frustrate you, what is your typical response, not your ideal response, but your response that uh, this is is how you respond? Um, Do you lash out? So when someone does something, says something, do you, you lash out and basically give them a piece of your mind? They said something, did something, your first response is to lash out. Uh, maybe your response would be just to defend yourself. You feel like someone's attacking you, coming at you with fists raised, and your first response is to put your hands up and get ready to defend yourself or defend why you did that or why you said this, whatever the case may be. Um, Maybe your response, again, typical response, is uh, to talk about that person to other people, but not to that person. That makes sense? So when you get frustrated, annoyed, someone just irks you, uh, is your typical response to actually talk about that person, uh, but not to that person? Meaning, oh, you're not going to believe what she or he did. Uh, You're not going to believe what he said or what she said. Maybe a typical response is you give them uh, good old-fashioned silent treatment, is you just basically uh, ignore them as if it didn't matter, and you kind of play that tough role uh, well, it doesn't matter. Uh, I got thick skin and doesn't, I don't really care what they said or what they did. But inwardly, you're kind of burning and you give that individual uh, the silent treatment. Uh, and these are the very dangerous people. So if this is you, I'm calling you dangerous. Um, the bottlers. When something happens, you get ticked, annoyed, frustrated, you just bottle it. You internalize it and you, it stews, it simmers, and it just sits with you. And then typically when someone who does something really minuscule does something, you just explode. So I've given you a few different typical responses, either lashing out, defending yourself, talking about the person but not to them, silent treatment, or you just bottle it all up until you explode. Bless you. How about, now that's your response to people who tick you off, annoy you. What is your response to your enemies. When I I'll lose, use uh, define enemies loosely in uh, thinking about enemies, people who intentionally seek to harm you, people who intentionally seek to harass you. 
uh, people who intentionally seek to either persecute you um, or cause you to trip, fall, or stumble. So the enemies that you have in your life, and we all have enemies, what is your typical response to those people? I'm talking about the people who really come hard after you. Typical response is to hate them back because they hate you, so why not? Why, don't I, why can't I hate them back or hurt them back? Again, a typical response might be I just ignore them and hope, hopefully <laughs> uh, they'll go away, kind of the ignore them or avoid them tactic. Maybe your tactic is I'm actually just going to fight them. I will go tit for tat. I will feud with them in hopes to defeat them. Or maybe just the mentality is, I'm going to give them what they deserve. They came after me like that. They will get what's coming to them. So I'm giving you, obviously, some pretty negative responses. uh, But I also feel like we actually typically have negative responses to when people come after us or when people intentionally seek to hurt or harm us. So the two questions I'm asking today is this. Is there a better way? Is there a better way to respond to people when they frustrate you, annoy you, tick you off? Is there a better way to respond to the people who hate you, to the people who are your enemies? And I realize we don't use that language uh, outside of comic books of that's my sworn enemy, but we have people in our life who we think about them like that because they hate you or an enemy. So is there a better way to respond to people who tick you off and your enemies? In thinking about this, um, this is a hard one uh, for me uh, because for the better part of 37 years, I've been a major, major failure uh, in this. Uh, For the better part of 37 years, my response is, if you come after me, I will defend myself. If you come after me, I will make sure that you also get what's coming to you. My response over a a span of 37 years uh, was not one of, I will love you, I will forgive, or I will be gracious and merciful and compassionate. I have experienced major failure uh, when it has come to answering these two questions, is there a better way? The way that I typically chose was the way of anger, the way of hatred, the way of bitterness, the way of defending myself or the way of just giving people what I thought they ultimately deserved. As long as you remain alive, you'll have to figure this one out. Because as long as you have breath in your lungs and you are living, you will have to deal with people. Uh, You will not be able to ever avoid human contact and human relationship. So today, as we go on, I really want you to press into uh, what is the way that I am choosing to respond Uh, to people when they come after me, whether it's in hate or an enemy or people who come after me, uh, just frustration and uh, annoyance. Um, As a church, as a church, I really want us to get this. If you were to ask, what is the purpose of this church? It would be summed up and purpose is to find, answers the question, why do you exist? So if you're wondering why we exist as a church, our purpose, our purpose is really summed up in two very simple ways, simple yet profound and difficult to carry out. To love God with all of who we are, not just parts of who we are, but all of who we are at all times in all places. So to love God is our purpose, why we exist, and secondly, uh, to love one another. Love God and love people. And I mean love people without discrimination, without prejudice, Uh, or without limitations or conditions, meaning I'll love you if you do this, or I'll love you if you perform, or we love people without prejudice, discrimination, without limitations, or without conditions. Now, I don't want to be confused when I say love God, love people. The only way that we can actually love God is because he actually loved us first. I cannot love God on my own. Like, it wasn't me who said, hey, God, I love you, and then God said, oh, okay, well, now I guess I'll, I'll talk to you about grace, and I'll talk to you about heaven. God set his love on me first. The only reason I can love him or love anyone, for that matter, is because he first loved me. 
And then secondly, uh, the only way that I can love people is to allow God to be at work in my life, and it's God's love pouring out of me to them. If it's not God's love in me, loving people, it's a very selfish, self-centered type of love. So loving God and loving people. Is there a better way? I go back to the question I asked you, what is your way? Like, I really want you to identify what is your way, your response uh, to people who annoy and frustrate, to people who hate, uh, to people who are your enemy. What is your way? And what I love about what Jesus does here in this last section in Matthew uh, chapter 5 is he lays out what the better way actually is. What's amazing is if we don't get this right, uh, we miss everything. Like, if you're the person who doesn't have your way figured out, meaning you don't know uh, how your response uh, will be, well, put it this way. Imagine this. Imagine someone comes after you, ticks you off, annoys you, frustrates you, and your response is, you yell at them, scream at them, silent treatment, defend yourself, whatever it might be. You go after them because they came after you. Can you at all imagine yourself as soon as you got it out of your system and be like, oh, by the way, I just want you to know God really loves you, and I'd love for you to come to church with me on Sunday. Like, can you imagine responding to someone where you just, you lose it, you blow your top, uh, you get whatever, angry, or whatever it is you do or say. Can you imagine actually looking at that person and be like, oh, well, by the way, I'm a Christian, and I would love for you to come to church and worship God with me and be part of this great community. Because if that was me, my first response would be like, if your God that you claim to love allows you to treat people like you just treated me, and if the community that you're part of has more people who look like you, I want nothing to do with it. So how you decide to respond If you choose the better way, it will be a great reflection of who God is and what God is like. But if you don't choose the way that Jesus teaches, you will misrepresent the heart of Christianity, the heart of the gospel. You will misrepresent God. And I have done this so many times in my life where I have literally said something uh, to someone, uh, and then I just felt God talking to me like, so why don't you go tell them how much I love them? And why don't you go invite them to be part of this or come to this? Well, God, I can't do that. That would be really silly and inconsistent with how I just acted. Which is your way that you take, and will you choose the better way? Jesus says this, Matthew 5, uh, chapter 38, or chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, Do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I'll say this. If you have not determined in advance, what your response will be, I guarantee when you're in the thick of the moment, you will have a response you wish you didn't. And you will find yourself saying, I cannot believe I said that to them again. I cannot believe I did that again. This is a decision you need to make. How will I respond? So when the situation comes up, someone frustrates, annoys, ticks you off, or hates you, seeks to harm you, If you do not have predetermined what your response will be, you will have a response you regret. And you will walk away from whatever you've done saying, why on earth did I do that again? Why did I say that again? Jesus, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Lex talionis is what's known as the law of just retribution. Okay, this was a law established in the Old Testament Uh, to establish justice, and to prevent uh, wrongdoing, to prevent evil, okay? 
This is Exodus, Old Testament. This is Moses. He says this in Exodus 21. This is where this law was established and comes from. And it's a very practical example. If men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman, I'm kind of thinking they must be terrible fighters. Like, I'm not sure how you swing at someone and be like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to strike you. If she gives, if uh, fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury. Now, by the way, there was this law because this happened. Okay, so it wasn't like hypothetically, two guys are going at it and a pregnant woman's standing next to her and you hit her and she goes into birth prematurely. So this is a law because this had happened. Okay, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and catch this, whatever the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. He goes on, this is um, uh, Lex Talionis again in uh, Leviticus 24. If anyone takes the life of a human being, he must be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution. Again, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, whatever he has done must be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has injured the other, so he is to be injured. This law was established to define what justice actually looks like, and it was established so that there would be a purging of evil in the community, that this would prevent people, it would cause them to think, if I hit this person and their tooth falls out, my tooth is coming out. And so they would think twice, I I probably shouldn't do that. So it established what justice would be, and it established um, a standard of trying to purge evil from the community. Lex talionis, the law of retribution, or just retribution. This was for the courts. What had happened by the time Jesus showed up on the scene is people had taken this law that was established for public officials, for the judicial system, and were taking matters into their own hand. So what was meant for the judicial system, uh, for public officials to be administers of justice, people were taking and taking upon themselves what justice they would serve, ultimately revenge. Now, what I like about this law of retribution is it administered even-handed justice. It did not matter who you were, what your status was. If you hurt someone and you were a high-ranking official, you were punished just the same. This law was blind to who the offender was. But what this law also did is it protected someone who did not have much status in the culture or society from being uh, prosecuted to a further, uh, further extent than they should be. So I want you to understand this is, you've probably heard this before in our culture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And we've typically heard it in get revenge. If someone does something to you, do it back to them. That is not what the Bible is teaching. This law of retribution was meant to protect. It was meant to establish justice and even-handed justice. Moses goes on in Leviticus, and he gives this command to the people. Leviticus 19, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay? So I'm just trying to reiterate, this is a law that was for public officials, not for individuals to take matters into their own hands. Now, in the first century, Jesus's audience is listening, and this is a topic that was fresh on their minds. Why? Because they were under Roman persecution and occupation. If you were Jewish in the first century, you didn't really have any rights. You had no way of defending yourself. You had no way of protecting yourself yourself. If the Romans wanted to do something, they could. And so fresh on the minds of his Jewish audience would be this idea of, we want to get revenge on what is being done to us. We want to defend ourselves for what 
evil is being done against us. And so Jesus teaches uh, about this law of retribution and how we are to rightly understand it. He says in verse 37, don't resist evil. There have been some pretty famous people, uh, Gandhi being one. Uh, Another one would be uh, Leo Tolstoy, author. These individuals, and there have been others, but these are two famous ones at least, have taken this phrase that we are to resist evil, and they have turned it into the ultimate form of uh, being a pacifist, meaning there is... There's no place ever for war. There's no place for things like military. There's no place for things like the police. And it's not that Gandhi and a guy like Tolstoy had just these unrealistic ideals. They had unbiblical ideals. This is not when Jesus says you are to resist evil. This is not making a statement of there should never be any military. There should never be any judicial system to protect. He's not saying that. What Jesus is saying here is you and I, we are not to take matters into our own hands. We are not to seek revenge so that when someone comes after you, you are not to take it upon yourself to put the hammer down on someone who put the hammer down on you. There is a law of retribution that is to be worked out in the courts. That's who Moses was talking to. He clearly says, do not take revenge on people. Do not hold a grudge against people. The people that Jesus was talking to misunderstood this law of retribution. And so Jesus says, you've heard it said like this. And then Jesus gives us a picture of four scenarios. If you are slapped on the cheek, okay? Has anyone ever been slapped? I mean not punched, okay? I mean like a legit slap across the face. If you're a woman raising your hand, I want to know who hit you, and our Genesis security team will, will, I guess we can't take revenge, but we'll give him a stern talking to, okay? If you were slapped on the face, that was the ultimate form of an insult, okay? So what Jesus, he's certainly talking about being slapped, but he's talking about what it means to be slapped, to be insulted or demeaned. It's a very symbolic way of in affront to a person's dignity and honor. I hope no one raises their hand, but has anyone ever been literally in anger, someone spit on you? I mean, that is to demean somebody where they look at you and they say, I spit upon you, that's what you're worthy of. So Jesus says, if you are slapped on the cheek, he gives that example. The second example is if someone is suing you, If someone's trying to take something from you that is rightfully yours, that's the second scenario. And by the way, when it talks about someone suing you, Jesus is making a statement here about if someone's infringing upon what you think your rights are, if someone insults you, if someone infringes upon your rights, the third one, if someone is forcing you to do something that you ultimately don't want to do, Roman soldiers would be able to take Jewish people, and make them do their grunt work. Simon of Cyrene, Matthew 27, the gentleman who was forced from the crowd to carry the cross of Christ. Why? A Roman soldier, why would he want to do that? At his disposal, at his power, he could pull someone from the crowd and say, you put that on you and you carry it. That's not my job, I'm a Roman. The fourth example Someone asking for your resources. It's not clear what the ask is. People just assume it's money. It certainly could be money. It could be your time. It could be other talents. It could be other resources. But someone is asking something of you. I'll go back to something I said a while ago. If you have not decided in advance of how you will respond, when someone slaps you, you will slap back. You will trade insult for insult. If someone, if you've not decided in advance how you'll respond when someone tries to infringe upon your rights, you will put your hands up and you will defend your rights. If you have not decided in advance what you will do when someone forces you to do something that you don't want to do, you will do it with bitterness and resentment in your heart towards whoever is forcing you to do this. 
If you have not decided in advance how you will respond when someone asks you for your stuff, you will not be a generous person. You will not give. You will be the person who grabs and hoards and keeps things for yourself. All under the banner of, you don't deserve that. You haven't worked. You're lazy. Get a job. If you have not decided in advance what your response will be, and please hear me, I'm trying to force this. I want you to decide now how you will respond to people when they slap you, when they come at you and question your rights or infringe upon your rights, if someone forces you to do something or if someone asks you to give something. Your response will be the wrong one if you don't decide decide in advance. So you ask yourself, what do I do? Okay, this is the question. When you're in that situation and someone does one of these four things, insults you, uh, questions your rights or takes, takes your rights away, if someone forces you to do something or asks you for something, ask yourself the question, and this is hopefully is a helpful practical question, how can I reverse the dynamic? How can I reverse this situation? This is exactly what Jesus does. Do you see how he reverses the dynamic? If someone slaps you, do not slap back. Do not trade insult for insult. If someone comes after you and questions your rights, do not defend and say, it is my right to have this. What Jesus says, why don't you just give him beyond what he's even asking for? A tunic was uh, like a, a, a night robe. Not that we wear night robes, but if you did, if you ever saw a little house in the prairie, guys would walk around in these uh, white robes and... Um, that's basically what a tunic is. It would be an undergarment that uh, men and women would wear. A cloak would be an indispensable piece of clothing for safety and for warmth and for comfort. So if someone's coming after you for something as small as an undergarment, why don't you give him above and beyond something that is a necessity to you? Jesus goes on and says, you know, if someone forces you to do something, and he gives an example of walk a mile, why can't you look at the person and say, let's go too. You've asked me to help you with this, but I'd, I'd like to help you with even more. And if someone asks you for something, Jesus says, give, be generous. Don't have a conversation with yourself in your head of, they're not worthy of what I'm about to give them. I don't give based on people's worth if they've worked hard enough. I give to people because Jesus told me to. That's it. That's my theology of giving. I give, why? Because Jesus told me to give. I know I'm repeating myself here quite a bit. If you have not decided in advance what you will do, when someone slaps you, you will slap back. You will defend your rights. You will have resentment and bitterness in your heart, and you will not give. Jesus reverses the dynamic and says, just turn the other cheek. Do not slap someone back. Do not insult them back. Do not defend yourself. Go even further than they're asking you to go, and do it with a sense of joy. And then give, and give very generously. I know the question uh, that typically people think of, if I do that, they'll get away with what they've done to me. And people have misrepresented this past, and you'd be like, well, Christians are just a bunch of wusses. They're a bunch of doormats. I'm supposed to live my life where just people walk all over me, and, oh, go ahead, step on my face. I don't care. We have this mentality, this attitude, if I, if I respond the better way, the way of Jesus, people will not get what they deserve. Or if I do that, I will be the person who gets walked all over. 
Let me just ask a question. What good is ultimately accomplished when evil is met with evil? Like, what good is really accomplished? What is gained when evil comes at you and you respond with evil? Hate breeds hate. But when someone comes after you and you respond in humility or grace or love, the fire gets put out. There's nothing more to talk about. Hate breeds hate, but love and grace and mercy and compassion have a way of winning people and has a way of putting the fire that has been started out. So if someone slaps you, infringes upon your rights, takes advantage of you, or seeks to take something from you, why not be silent? Why not be wronged? Why not be taken advantage of? Why not just be generous? Those are the four responses that reverse the dynamic of the situation. Why not be silent? Why not be wronged? Why not be taken advantage of? Why not be generous? This is uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this in response to this passage. He said, this is a visible participation in his cross. When I'm reversing the dynamic and not slapping back, not demanding my rights, going the extra mile, and giving and being generous, this is a visible way for me to participate in the passion of Jesus, in the cross of Christ. And you have to ask yourself really the question, is it really that important that you speak in such a way that that person can just feel your sting? Like when you get slapped, is it really that important? Is there something in you that is just wells up and says, I've got to sting them back? Because then you have to ask yourself, is it, who's, who's the evil one here? Is it really that important that you get your rights and you feel vindicated somehow? Is it really that important that you are never forced to, to do something and go beyond that? Jesus says this is a better way. What I love about what Jesus does is he just doesn't talk about it. At the end of his life, he put to action what he's talking about here. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. It says this, he committed no sin, meaning there was no reason for Jesus to go through what he was about to go through. He was not guilty of anything. He willingly subjected himself to the abuse and the torture, the beating, the crucifixion. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. If there was ever a man who had every right to slap back, to demand his rights, to not even go one mile, and not to give anything, his name was Jesus. But Jesus, the one who taught, do not slap back, was silent when he was slapped and spit upon and mocked. Paul goes to say this in Romans chapter 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Please hear this. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge and I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you see how Paul even learned this dynamic of, or this idea of reversing the dynamic? If someone's hungry, feed him. If someone's coming after you, love them. When this happens tomorrow, 
today, this coming week, reverse the dynamic. But decide now how you will respond when someone comes after you. When your response is, well, I'm going to give them what they deserve. When your response is one of vengeance, you're ultimately communicating to God this message. I don't trust that you care, so I will do what you are clearly unwilling to do for me. When you take upon yourself vengeance, giving people what you think they deserve, you communicate to God, you ultimately don't care. Because if you did, you would see my pain, you'd see my turmoil, you'd see my persecution, you'd see my hurt, and you would do something. Clearly, you're either blind or you just don't care. So I will become God in this situation. I will become the judge. I will become the jury, and I will become the executioner. Just so you know, God is not looking for any junior robocops. He's not looking for any one of us to take upon ourselves justice. We pursue justice, but God is the one who is righteous, and he is, has a, is a righteous judge. Now, for those of you who feel like this response is, uh, makes you a wuss, makes you the one who gets walked all over, let me just ask you the question of who's really the stronger one? If someone comes at you, and we'll use the example, if someone slaps you, insults you, demeans you, spits on you, calls into question your character, your honor, your integrity, who is the stronger one? The one that slaps back, trades insult for insult? Or is the stronger one, the one who is able to contain within himself, the one who is able ultimately to control every inclination that's within himself or herself to strike back? Who's stronger? Who's the wuss? I will say the wuss is the one who has no control over his tongue. I will say the wuss is the one who slaps first. The strong one, not the doormat, the strong one is found in the person who can control himself and choose the better way. Giving people what we think they deserve is not strength, it's sinful. But trusting a righteous God to care for us is not weakness, I want you to catch this. When you respond this better way that Jesus is teaching, it is not weakness. It is the beginning of winning that person to God. Because I guarantee no one else does this. And if Christians can't even do this, then I have no hope that anyone else will be able to do this. When you respond in strength, contained and controlling yourself, that is the beginning to winning that person to God. Don't slap back. Don't demand your rights. Go above and beyond and give generously and blindly as God does. And just so you know, there is an active vengeance. Okay? This message is not that Jesus is speaking is not just an active, visible vengeance, that we're not to do that, but there is a passive, quiet, silent vengeance that we can take, that no one might see, but I want you to know that God sees. A passive, quiet, silent vengeance looks like this. Do you celebrate when those who have wronged you experience failure? Like, do you quietly, quietly to yourself smile, like, they got what they're coming, that you don't say that out loud, but you think that in your head and your heart. They totally deserve that. And you enjoy when they fail or when they fall. Do you enjoy watching when things just don't work out for people who have wronged you? Do you somehow get some sense of excitement or joy or laughter when something just goes totally south for someone? Do you celebrate that? That's vengeance. And they might not see it, and maybe the person sitting next to you, they might not see it, but guess what? God sees it. And that is not pleasing to him. That is ultimately sinful. 
It's a great way to come alongside someone. If someone who has wronged you, if they've fallen, if they've failed, and they're literally just down on their face, there's the type of person who will go to them to make sure they kind of rub it in. I'll stand over you just so you know I'm standing, you're fallen. And then there's the person who will go and stand and sit and lay down next to that person, not to rub it in, but to let that person know that somebody cares. And I wonder if you would be that person, if we would be that, that community, that we don't celebrate quietly someone's failures and, and when they fall, we would actually position ourselves so closely that when they go down, they don't go down alone. We will go down with them so that they know that somebody cares for them. We live in a world that declares, if you come after me, I will come even harder after you. But Jesus is calling us to create a different world, a world in which the way is not marked by revenge and retaliation, but by redeeming love. I want to finish with the um, last few verses in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. And I'm hoping that somebody has already been impressed upon your heart. Someone who even slapped you maybe even today, insulted you. Someone who infringed upon your rights. Please, if you've got a paper, write their name down. Remember who it is that God is pressing in on your heart so that you would go to them today. Not to slap, not to insult, not to mock or make fun of, but to come alongside and win that person. Jesus says this, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor, which is a quotation of Leviticus 19, verse 18, we've already read that, and hate your enemy, which is not a quote from Scripture. This is what the Pharisees were teaching that we are to hate the things that God hates, and God hates sin. And so apparently the Pharisees were teaching, this is what they were teaching, that God hates sinners. Basically, God hates the prostitutes, God hates the tax collectors, God hates those types of people. So hate those types of people was the message. Jesus is saying, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is what was being said. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Sometimes... Christians say that love is the ideal. Love is not the ideal. Love is a command. If it was just an ideal, I could kind of choose when I, when I wanted to work that ideal into whatever situation. Love is not the biblical ide- ideal. Love is a biblical command. Ask yourself this question. Is there anyone in your life, not the life of someone sitting next to you, but is there someone in your life that you would declare that God has deemed them unlovable. Maybe a friend, uh, a coworker, or somebody. Is there someone in your life, when you even think of them now, you would somehow deem them that God doesn't even love that person? I hope most of us would say, no. I can't think of a person that God does not love. So then the follow-up question, is there anyone in your life that for whatever reason you're unwilling to love that person. If you have that person in your life that you're not willing to love, what does that say about the God in whose image they've been created? If you are unwilling to love someone in your life, you are communicating to God, you really screwed up with that person. Like you really messed up royally with that person. If we have all been created in the image of God, which we have, and God loves every single one of us without favoritism, who am I and who are you to ever look at someone and say, you are not worthy of me loving you? I realize that we 
all have people in our lives who make it very difficult to love. I'm sure I write a list and you could probably think of five, ten, maybe even more people. They're just really difficult people to love. I mean, they're really challenging for me to actually love them. But this is where we get love wrong. My love of people is typically based on performance. If you do me right, I will love you a lot. If you do me wrong, not so much. But that's not God's love. That's Michael's sinful, selfish love. Jesus even asked that question. What good is it if you love those who love you? Like, where's the reward in that? Anyone can do that. I know that you might be thinking, you just don't get it. You don't really understand how much hurt, pain, trauma they have caused to me. Like, they have destroyed my life. And I get that, but the reality is that I have to look in the mirror and say, I cannot believe that despite what I've done, despite what I do, and despite what I will do, God still loves me. I cannot look at another person in the face and say, because of what you've done, because of what you're currently doing, and because of what I think you'll do, I just can't love you. I cannot do that because God does not do that to me. Every day, see my face in the mirror. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you will do, I still love you. Nothing can separate us from his love. Now, what's really a challenge for me, and if you're a Christian, if you're not willing to love that person, and you claim to be a Christian, meaning you claim to follow Jesus, and you have people that you can't love, if they can't get love from you, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, it is a really good chance that they might not ever see love again. I'm talking God-like love. The person that you have the hardest time loving because of what they've done or what they've said or what you think they will do, if you cannot love them, it is a good chance that they will not see another witness of love in their life. So if you're a Christian, this is not the ideal, this is a biblical command. And we're not only to love people, Jesus says practically, Pray for people when they persecute you. I had a, um, uh, this didn't really end well, so this is not a a great story. Um, But the very first church I worked at back in the mid-90s, I was the youth pastor, and there was this woman who uh, was the children's uh, uh, pastor. And I just, we just butted heads. Uh, It was like a most challenging, most difficult person to work with. And the pastor of the church kept challenging me and kept challenging me. What is your deal with her? Why can't you love her? I don't know, pastor. I just, I had the hardest time loving this person. The things that she would do and even how she would do them and how she would say them, it just got under my skin. I'm guessing this has happened to you before. And my pastor said, Michael, why don't you try praying for her? It's like, huh, that's an interesting concept. I'm a pastor at a church. I probably should have known that. It's like, why don't you try praying for this person? Because God does something uniquely in someone's heart when you're praying for them. Meaning God actually begins to change your heart and align your heart up with his. I can't pray for someone with hatred in my heart towards them. It just doesn't work. So when I pray for that person who is persecuting, coming after me, hating me, when I pray for that person... God gives me his heart for that person. I cannot do it on my own. That was the challenge he gave me. And my heart did begin to change towards this woman. And it was only in prayer. It wasn't because of anything else. Jesus says, people persecute you, pray for them. Love how Jesus says, love that you may be sons of your father in heaven. This is not a command like, if you don't love, then 
Clearly, uh, you have to love people to get your way into heaven. But if you claim to be a child of God, a Christian, a follower of Christ, that means you're God's child. And part of being in God's family is loving like God loves. My kids, if you're in the Davis family, you will be a Buckeye fan. You don't have a choice. If you are in God's family, you don't have a choice. You are called to love. Why? Because that's the Father. He loves. And if you even put the name Son of God, Daughter of God, claiming Him to be your Father, it's expected, it's commanded that you will be a child who will love like the Father loves. My kids will love the Buckeyes because they see how much I love the Buckeyes. Hopefully, my kids will love Jesus because they see how much Kyla and how much I love Jesus. But if you are a follower of Christ, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, that we will love everything that God loves. Well, the obvious question is, how does God love people? I'll just leave it pretty simply at this. God loves without discrimination. Jesus says, He sends the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's a clever way for Jesus to say, God doesn't show favoritism. That person is evil, they get no rain, but their next door neighbor, the righteous, I'll send the rain just on them. No sun for them, sun for them. No grace for them, grace for them. God does not show favoritism, which means I am to not show favoritism. That means I am to love without discrimination, without limitations, without conditions. Why? Because that's how God loves me. I don't know if you're thinking of one person or now your list has grown to a few, two or three or four people, but I just put the challenge out there. Would you love that person that you're thinking of this week? And not 